There's a quote that I love from the artist and writer Leonora Carrington. It goes, The task of the right eye is to peer into the telescope, while the left eye peers into the microscope. I think that what Carrington meant was that if we don't at least try to look at life while holding these two perspectives, the past and the future, in our hands at the same time, then we can't fully comprehend the scope of the challenges that we face, nor the solutions that might remedy them. That notion feels quite timely. We're facing so many seemingly existential challenges right now, from global conflict and climate change to housing scarcity. And tackling these issues is inherently risky business. There's a chance that taking a big swing in the pursuit of positive and innovative change might not pan out. But surely the bigger risk for all of us would be to avoid taking a shot at something potentially revolutionary because we're afraid of risk itself. So if we can use that dual perspective, the telescope and the microscope, to reimagine risk and become more tolerant of it, we might just be able to see beyond short-term uncertainty and look instead towards a more equitable world. I'm Caroline Modaresi Tirani. This is American Metamorphosis. I mean, it's the biggest and the best. That's <laughs> I don't know if this is the most complicated thing you know human beings could pull off, but it must be getting close. I'm Marsha Riki. I'm an astronomy professor at the University of Arizona, and I have been there for 45 years. And for the last 22-some years, I have been the principal investigator for the near-infrared camera on the Webb Space Telescope. Near-infrared light is the section of electromagnetic radiation wavelengths. It's just past what the human eye can naturally see. But the James Webb Telescope has instruments that take its view of history far beyond that range. Well, it's a very large telescope the primary mirror that gathers the light from the stars and things is over 21 feet across. So it's quite a bit bigger than Hubble. But what makes it really special is that it's an infrared telescope and it's quite cold. And infrared means being able to detect light that's longer in wavelength than the Hubble. Before the James Webb, the Hubble was the largest and most versatile telescope in orbit. It launched back in 1990, and Marsha was its deputy principal investigator, a role that helps prepare grants, conduct research, and more. But shortly after Hubble was put into orbit, astronomers recognized signs of galaxies just beyond the telescope's sights. We think the universe started with the Big Bang, and we have been making observations for some time trying to look at distant galaxies. And the Hubble Space Telescope has taken images that have gotten us within something like 500 million years of the Big Bang. And if you know that the total age of the universe is 13.7 billion years, that's pretty good. So Hubble showed us a starting point, but we needed to go beyond Hubble's boundaries to be able to get early enough insight into our galaxy's beginnings. Our state of knowledge right now is that it's kind of like you're trying to study how human beings are born and grow, but not seeing anything between when the baby is about one day old and the baby is maybe two or three years old. And so there's this huge gap of what happens early in the formation of the objects we've come to know and love in our local universe. And that's where we're trying to get to. 
So NASA scientists and astronomers from 14 countries around the world had to push the envelope of what was possible even further than Hubble. And after 40 million hours in the making, the James Webb Telescope was finally launched in December 2021. I think when people typically think of a telescope, they think of something that they're they're seeing in motion right now. My eye is seeing something that's right in front of me. But in this case, in the case of Webb, it's billions of years in the past. So how is that possible? Well, it's possible because light doesn't travel infinitely fast. And so if you take into account distance, distance translates into time because it takes light a long time to travel a, a big distance. Because of the amount of time it takes the light to come here, we see things as they were at younger and younger stages. And so we see it when mankind may have been just crawling around at the first steps of those early people. And then as we go out, we'll pass by galaxies where the dinosaurs were on Earth when the light left that galaxy. And then we can go all the way back to the most distant galaxies and Earth didn't actually exist when the light left those galaxies. It takes so long to come to us. And so distance acts like a time machine. And so that's how we play this game of looking back into history. But even with all that Webb promised, it was a risky endeavor and not everyone was convinced it was going to work. For starters, the telescope itself is enormous. The honeycombed glass has a sun shield the size of a tennis court, and the entire machine is the weight of a school bus. I suppose just taking a step back for a second, how do you view risk in what you do? Oh, well, if one is not willing to take some risk, you better not join a space project because there is risk from start to finish. Right at the beginning, there's risk that you spend a year writing a proposal and it gets turned down. And then there's a lot of times where you think you have a cool design and it's going to do everything you want. And then you get a little ways further into it and you discover you have to junk the whole thing and start over. And of course, once you get to the end game, when you're doing a rocket launch, rockets are inherently risky because it's a controlled explosion. Rockets blow up on average 1% or 2% of the time. If you want certainty, don't get involved with rockets. And then, of course, when you want to do something like Webb, where you need to be very cold, you have to get far from Earth, and you know that there's no way an astronaut's going to go there and fix it. So you, you take appropriate precautions, but it is a risk that something you know, just one thing can mess up the whole procedure. So from your perspective, is risk inherent to innovation? There are a lot of engineers who say they don't want to do something that's never been done before. Well, then you're never going to make progress. If you want to innovate and do something new, you've got to take a chance sometimes. And you, you, you can do all sorts of things to minimize the risk. But until something has actually been done there's always some risk that there's something you've overlooked, but we'll, we'll never do something better if we don't try. How do you think that that is understood by the government? You know, like I think that when you're talking to other scientists, they probably totally get what you're saying. But, you know, when you're trying to then sell a project to the government and you're saying like, look, one, one to 2% of rockets blow up and we're using a, a rocket to do this and you know, the alignment is just, we're talking, what is it, like 
not even just millimeters, right? Like it's less than half. Nanometers, which is a billionth of a meter. (laughs) So we're talking about a billionth of a meter and no astronaut can go and fix it. So how do you sell that risk to the government who doesn't have an infinite pool of money for this kind of endeavor? Well, first, you have to highlight what the science goals are and why they can't be done any other way. And I think that's been the the driving force behind this, that if we wanted to find those first galaxies, if we want to understand the composition of an exoplanet atmosphere, any of these kinds of things, there's no other way to do it than what the web is going to provide. So just how much is riding on the James Webb Telescope succeeding in terms of future exploration and future innovation? A lot. Um, Let's just say if any of those deployments had failed, astronomy, and not just U.S. astronomy, but astronomy around the world would be in a big hole for quite a while because we promised a lot. And then obviously if we delivered a failure, that wasn't going to be too good. But a lot of young people's careers are now tied to having this telescope succeed. And it will be a blow to them if they don't get to do the things they've been dreaming about for several years. I mean, there's nothing, you know, people who have never experienced the joy of discovery, I would like to figure out some ways to get them involved because discovering something for the first time, however small it might be, is a great joy. And that's partly what these missions are all about. to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. In our first two seasons, we looked at disruptions to fundamental pillars of our society, from presidential transitions to the way that COVID reshaped our approach to life, work, and the world around us. This third season, we're looking at disruption as a force for good, a tool to address the many crises we seem to be facing today, from the lack of sustainability in our food and housing systems to rising inflation. Solving each one requires innovative thinking and coordinated action. Perhaps more than anything, it will require us to transform our perspective and understanding of risk. Because as history shows us, sometimes the biggest risk of all is to not take one. The two have a symbiotic relationship. Um, I think there is no innovation without a risk of making a change, making a move. My name is Alex Lazaro. I am a venture capitalist by day. I invest in startups uh, around the world. Um, By night, I research, I write, I teach. He's also the author of a new book called Out Innovate, how global entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley. So much tech that shaped the 20th century, also known as the American century, came out of Detroit, Michigan. The auto industry, Boeing aircrafts, fiber optics, assembly lines, traffic lights, paved roadways, Motown. In many ways, Detroit was a version of Silicon Valley today. People from around the world came to contribute to the innovation happening in the city. A hundred years ago, the technology of the day, it wasn't software, it wasn't 
uh, it wasn't startups, it was automobiles. And life software promised to remake our world in all of these incredible ways and in how we organize our cities and how we work and things like that. And Detroit had hundreds of startups and the big three auto manufacturers were there, et cetera. Um, what happened, right? Um, what happened was that innovation globalized and that um, different regions around the world specialize in different things in the innovation scape. So you might say Germany might be the capital of raw engineering and Italy of the most beautiful sports cars and uh, Japan, the most reliable cars. And the capital of electrification is uh, in California with Tesla or arguably Shenzhen um, in China. So I'm curious, I guess, you know, at one point it was the epicenter of so much American creation and very distinctly American creation, right? Like Americana and like car culture is so ubiquitous across this nation. And it was so widely exported that like Detroit was synonymous with that. And it felt very cutting edge until the point it didn't. I think that with great ideas and great business opportunities comes replication. Um, Detroit, like Silicon Valley, did not have a monopoly on the ability to produce cars or the idea of transportation. And I think the same thing that happened in Detroit, right, of uh, ecosystems around the world specializing, by the way, is happening today in, uh, in the world of innovation. Like pre-Brexit, I would have argued London was the best place in the world to start financial services company. I would say today, the best place in the world for e-government might be in Estonia. And cybersecurity might be in Tel Aviv. I think, one, it is inevitable that there are going to be challengers uh, around the world. And I think, two, it's also inevitable that um, different places will have different localized advantages um, based on culture, based on demand, et cetera. I think to stay ahead, like I think, I think my advice to Silicon Valley is we have something really unique here. There is an opportunity to learn from uh, everything else that's going on. Silicon Valley will not go away. It will be a really relevant hub going forward, but it is also inevitable that there will be other hubs around the world. We need to learn from, adapt, and continue being one of the important nodes in there. It's this combination of innovation and persistence that Alex finds worth exploring. In his book, he calls it the Detroit moment. At its core, it's the idea that today, innovation is not based on places, but on people. So when I wrote the piece on the Detroit moment, and moment might not actually be the right word because it didn't happen overnight, but to a fundamental shift to a distributed ecosystem of car production around the world, where, by the way, the biggest car companies are not all from Detroit and the biggest one in the world is... Uh, is global, right? And and it was that that shift that happened. Um, and so that's what I call the Detroit moment. And I think that we're about to have this, and, and frankly, we are we are in the process of having this Silicon Valley moment, where where now innovation is distributed around the world. One way Alex wants to see Silicon Valley evolve is by having its entrepreneurs take a different, more socially progressive kind of risk. One of the things that I really admire about the best entrepreneurs around the world is a different attitude of creation, of looking for markets where there are massive gaps. There are 1.5 billion people that are unbanked around the world and probably the same amount underbanked. There are uh, billions of people that don't have access to healthcare or education or some of these massive challenges. And then I think one of the things that we need to do in Silicon Valley and the risk we need to take is to get outside our comfort zone of what disruption is, of the problems that we know how to do very well. And by the way, Silicon Valley is extraordinary at <laughs> building software as a service uh, products that uh, make life easier for enterprise. I think we need to push ourselves um, to really do some of these uh, important creation outcomes um, because I think that's how we stay relevant. And, and that, by the way, is risk, right? It's a risk to come out of our comfort zone to do this. 
What does it mean to be a chief risk officer? To be a chief risk officer, if somebody in the world is worrying about something, it's probably my job. That's Tad Roseland. He's a senior partner and managing director at the Boston Consulting Group. And for the last 10 years, he was the company's first chief risk officer. Getting philosophical then, how do you define risk? Like what is risk to you? Risk is a funny word, right? Um, when people hear risk, they have a very emotional reaction, it tends to be sometimes negative. Um, and I always used to laugh when I, when I would walk into a room as the head of risk, everybody would kind of look around for where's the closest exit. Um, and oh my gosh, he's here to either yell at me or tell me I can't do what I want to do. That's kind of risk with the big capital R. Risk is everywhere. Risk is learning to drive. My 16-year-old is currently learning to drive right now. That's inherently a risky process <laughs> for him and for uh, like everybody else on the road right now. <laughs> um, but that is, that's how we unlock opportunity. I grew up in rural New England and no free lunch is like one of the things that's ingrained in you. And it's, there is no reward without risk. And so in order to unlock the things that we want to do, whether it be innovation or growth or expansion or strategy, there has to be some kind of risk taken. And all of those things done without an eye towards risk, it's like an unconstrained nuclear reaction. You know, it's dangerous in and of itself. So risk is not something that you want to shy away from. It's something that you want to understand and manage and mitigate and plan for. Because by doing so, you allow a business, a kid learning to drive, a child learning to walk, whatever it is, you allow them to succeed and you allow further growth. Can you break down for us the, the elements of risk? The first part of risk is understanding risk, understanding where it is, um, how big it might be, um, how likely it is, um, how fast it will impact you. The second thing is about in, in good risk is planning around those risks and understanding the policies that you need, the controls that you need. Those are the classic tools of risk management. The other aspect, though, is the awareness that you build. Pattern recognition is critical to risk management. And then action is the last part. How do you respond when risk happens? How do you actively manage a situation, crisis management? How do you manage consequences? How do you then fundamentally learn? Because it's just if you don't learn from the situations are going to happen, how do you know you're managing risk well without managing it to the point where creativity and innovation is stifled? So I, I have a thousand and one favorite expressions. You serve in a job for long enough, you come up with like pet phrases. So one of my other favorite expressions is um, the purpose of a good risk person is to enable people to think outside the box, but inside the circle. That's that classic creativity expression, right? Think outside the box. but understanding risk allows you to draw a circle around that creativity 
lines that you don't cross, whether they be ethical lines, um, whether they be policy, legal lines. I mean, there's lots of reasons why you don't want to be outside the circle. Now, if you're good at risk and good at risk management, you appropriately draw that circle so it's far enough away from the box that you have unleashed creativity, but not so far that you don't do it with an eye towards how far can you go. So what happens if somebody doesn't take a risk, right? So like, let's think about the, the pitfalls that can befall people for drawing that circle too tight. Yep. Use Kodak as an example. Classic example. History is all about learning, but it can also be constraining. It can be a burden. It can be a weight. And so Kodak is taught in business schools and, and, and cited all, everybody knows the example about how they didn't jump into digital because so much of their business model was caught up in paper and processing of, of film. And so they were hesitant to cannibalize um, that profit center and go into digital. And they missed, they missed the digital wave. And, you know, there are other examples, um, clients that we've worked with who have created innovative businesses, but had to structure it almost outside of their current business because they knew that the current business would kill it in subtle ways. Is that what the auto industry was doing for years and years? putting the electrical vehicles business or sort of hybrid car vehicle business into a separate category and continuing to just rely on fossil fuels. Electrical vehicles, low-cost airlines trying to be run by existing higher-cost airlines. I mean, there's lots of examples of how do you foster innovation in a corporate environment that is constrained, burdened, knowledgeable, pick your word, of its history. How do you do that? Sometimes you can't, Kodak, right? But if we go back to the question you asked about history, it's like taking risk or any other learning from failure. You know, companies that learn to fail fast, does the failure, does the history, does the success? You know, it's the flip side. How is that? Is that an input into your process or is that a constraint? around your process? Is it, a, is it something you learn from that then lets you say, okay, wow, these things went wrong. I want to make sure they don't go wrong again when I look at this new thing. Or is it these things went wrong? How could I possibly do this new thing? Because it'll just go wrong again. And so I guess my thinking around risk is the reason we want to understand risk is to make it an input into our strategy and innovation process. The thing about risk in Tad's opinion is that it isn't wed to an institution. People take risks. And just because a company or even a city didn't take a leap in the past, it doesn't mean they're doomed to be stagnant in the future. Tad, do you feel like once a, a company or even a city uh, has been labeled as risk averse, is that irreversible. I'm thinking a little bit about Detroit. Do you feel like there is a rehabilitation open to companies or cities in this case that you can be seen to actually be an innovative space? I have a hard time thinking about 
companies or even cities or things as risk averse or not risk averse. It's about people and it's about leadership. And companies can always reinvent themselves because people can reinvent themselves and people can learn and people can change. And so a new management team comes into a company and yeah, they're, they're, they carry a little bit of the burden of the past, right? Because there's brand and the brand has a, a, a reputation and they'll have to overcome that. And so for a city to do that, yeah, you know, you line up a hundred people and you say Detroit and you're going to get a certain set of answers, which may not be anything like those same hundred people when you say the Valley. And that has to be overcome. But there's nothing institutional about Detroit that says it can't change or that it can't think differently about itself. It's about its people and it's about confidence and it's about looking forward. And like we talked about earlier, it's about learning from the past, but not being burdened by the past. So just because you get a great group of people who suddenly think differently about something isn't a guarantee that they're going to make it. I mean, that's I mean. Innovation is risky. If, as Leonora Carrington suggests, we understand that the task of the right eye is to peer into the telescope and the left into the microscope, then we acknowledge that there is a push and a pull, a coordinated effort that must involve the perspective of our past with the promise of our future. Or in Tad Rosen's case, a marriage between the speeding up and the slowing down. This has stuck with me um, for a while, and it's about race cars. Everybody thinks race cars go fast because of aerodynamics or their tires or how big the engine is and stuff like that. If you talk to a race car driver, he'll tell you race cars go fast because of the brakes, which sounds completely opposite, right? Race cars go fast because of safety. But if you talk to a driver, the reason he is able to or she is able to go fast is because they trust their brakes. And so for a business leader, for a strategist, the reason they are able to go fast, the reason that they can push into a new market, the reason they can launch a new product that is just completely different the reason I'm able to, to do AI or machine learning that is so innovative, it's because I know I have responsible AI built in. It's because I have brakes and I trust those brakes. And it's so it's not that unconstrained nuclear reaction. There is something in it that lets me know that this is, yes, it's innovative, it's crazy, it's gonna be new, but I understand the risks to my current business. I understand the risks to society. I understand all this, and I've planned for those. Risk must be intertwined with strategy. The brakes are no good if they're outside the car, right? <laughs> when risk is enmeshed seamlessly with strategy and innovative ideals, when the brakes and the gas pedal work as one, the opportunity is really at its core about community. Taking a risk doesn't have to be isolating. Collective intentions, more often than not, lead to collective positive outcomes. Just ask Marsha Riki at NASA. 
people that heard about the telescope, they might have seen the gorgeous images that we've um, we've seen beaming from these outer edges of space. And but the, it was it was very much a human effort, right? Forty million hours, forty million, four zero million hours spent building the Webb Telescope. I think it was 14 countries that were involved, thousands of scientists, of engineers and technicians. When you think about it like that, in the context of maybe some of the fractious global issues that we're seeing today, how do you view the telescope in that lens? I hope that it shows the world that there are ways to come together and agree on a on a overarching interesting goal and that people can people can achieve things if they agree to work together but i think as something that can give young people hope something to look towards and and just as a um, a beautiful example of something that people can achieve and can reveal things that I hope we reveal something we never even guessed about the universe. Being able to say that that planet orbiting that star is the kind that might be enough like Earth, that maybe Earth-like life evolved there. I mean, to be able to say that, in my mind, really should be changing people's outlook on, on the whole universe. And on their interactions with one another here on Earth. That's right. Yes. I mean, we need to go in both directions. And when I think about um, what we know and don't know, there's lots we don't know out in space, but there's also lots we don't know about our own ocean. There's many things we don't know. So we need to be keeping eyes out in both directions. Both directions, the past and the present, the depths of water and the outskirts of space, the microscope and the telescope. You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Join us next week as we examine the interconnectedness of our housing, our humanity, and the ways that we build both. 